Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Today on Latin American Intersections, we are looking at Central American immigrants to the U.S. and the challenges they face as refugees and asylum seekers. More than 130,000 Central Americans applied for refugee status last year, according to the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, hunger and violence being primary factors in the number of refugees and asylum seekers at the U.S. border. What is the journey like for the tens of thousands of people that arrived to the U.S.? To help us explore this topic, we are privileged to have Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America. Maureen directs WOLA's Mexico program, co-directs WOLA's initiatives on migration and border policy, and frequently visits the U.S.-Mexico border as part of her work. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Good. Is my sound good? Works for me. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Perfect. All right. Let's get started. Uh, Maureen Meyer, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. So Maureen, uh, let's, I already uh, introduced you and what the Washington Office on Latin America is all about. And now I wanted to kind of start with what is the average experience of, a, of someone from Central American someone from Central America as they begin their journey, once they've decided to make that journey uh, from their home through Mexico to the U.S. border and what that experience is culminating in at this moment. Well, thank you. Um, I think it's, it's important to distinguish sort of two categories of migrants coming from Central America, which would be those that can afford to hire a smuggler to, to guide them to the U.S.-Mexico border versus those that are trying to make it on their own, particularly make it on their own up to the U.S.-Mexico border. I think for the latter, so a Central American who really has no other um, opportunity, I can say we met a family, a Honduran family, Garufunas, last year in the southern border of Mexico and Tenosique, who literally made the decision to leave between one day and the next. And it was a family 17 people because five members of their family had been killed by gangs. So I think for a lot of people, the decision to leave 
is provoked by some horrific act of violence or threats that become so severe that people feel that their lives are at risk or the lives of their, their children or other family members. So for that population, crossing and reaching the U.S.-Mexico border is full of many risks. And they certainly have a lot of um, shelters that they can stay in in Mexico. But apart from the shelters, what they are facing is a very long journey. It has become more difficult to travel Mexico given increased enforcement in Mexico through what's known as the Southern Border Program, which was enacted in 2015. The Mexican government <clears throat> increased significantly enforcement in Southern Mexico, adding additional agents, additional checkpoints, making it harder for migrants to travel on the train. Which... Now, to be clear, is mm -hmm. Mexican enforcement along their southern border something that the U.S. supports or has no role in? The U.S. has supported, I think, both politically. There's a lot of sense the U.S. really pressured and asked Mexico to step up its efforts in 2014, given the, the heightening crisis of families and unaccompanied children reaching the U.S.-Mexico border. It's also something that the United States has funded as part of the Medida Initiative, a uh, security aid package that's been around since 2008. Our best estimates are that the U.S. has allocated around $200 million for southern border security in Mexico, um, which includes, but is fairly limited to su some support for Mexico's immigration agency, particularly in terms of training that is done by U.S. Um, immigration or customs agents. Now, did you say 200 million? Because I think I'm going to follow up with you on that. Yes, 200 million. Uh, maybe I could go ahead and ask this question now then, um, just real quick. So that 200 million that's been going towards from the U.S. to Mexico for border security, is that having the kind of impact we want? Or is that something that um, could be put to better use? Just briefly. I think we've seen an evolution of where the U.S. assistance is going in southern Mexico. One area that's been a particular interest of the United States is increasing Mexico's biometric capacity. So literally equipment in detention centers or at the land ports of entry that give Mexican immigration agents a better sense of who's coming through the country. It's something that's of interest to the United States, obviously, because it enables them to detect people that may be special interest the United States, um, as well as smugglers and others that are coming through. Um, that has been something that has actually been revamped and has increased in funding in, in recent years. The other is actually a joint project between the Department of Defense and State Department to work with Mexico's security forces, so military, federal police, and their immigration agency to stand up some communications towers along the southern Mexico border as a way to increase communications amongst all of Mexico's security forces. I think the main focus of a lot of this, particularly um, on the Defense Department side, is looking at detecting drug trafficking and supporting right. Mexico's efforts in interdiction of drugs. Other um, types of equipment, like non-intrusive inspection equipment and checkpoints, is clearly used to scan vehicles for, for drugs or weapons, but can also be used to detect people. So sort of a mix sometimes of assistance that is mostly focused on strengthening Mexico's security in the southern border, but can also be you know, translated into supporting efforts to detain um, migrants in transit through the country. Very good to know. Um, so continuing on this journey from Central America to our border. So going back to that, and I think looking at these vulnerable migrants, what we have seen is many of them having to walk 
hundreds of miles sometimes. Very long distances. They change shoes frequently and are left lots of blisters, I think, because of, of the, the travel, but also subject to more risks because they are traveling through more vulnerable areas. Mexico has had uh, a growing problem of crimes against migrants. I think as we've seen organized crime expand in Mexico, that's also translated into expanding um, crimes against migrants, meaning kidnappings, sexual assault, robbery, extortion, and for the most part, crimes that are um, committed with fairly few investigations into those responsible. So it's a very dangerous trip. And I think that speaks a lot to the fact that for the Central Americans that are fleeing violence, that the violence in Mexico isn't a deterrent because they feel like it's worth that risk, given what they many view as likely death in, in their home countries. So, and, mm -hmm. well, and to be clear, uh, these people that are coming through Mexico, I'm assuming they have very little knowledge or very little access to the resources to deter these crimes or to report these crimes as far as they, as far as they know when they make this journey. I think there's that aspect. There's also the fact that migrant shelters have been very um, increasing their efforts to better document crimes against migrants. So we have seen an increase in um, complaints lodged. We can see that in the fact that m there have been a 575% incre increase in migrants requesting humanitarian visas in Mexico. And that type of visa is if you've been a victim of a violent crime in Mexico. No, so wait, you are you... Are you saying that they are actually seeking visas in Mexico to stay in Mexico? To stay well? in Mexico and to stay wow. in Mexico to pursue a criminal complaint. So okay. someone that's been a victim of a kidnapping or an armed robbery, you know, it's a way to stay in the country at least a year while they, you know, look at, um, you know, how do you continue on with the investigation? Our reporting with migrant shelters in Mexico has shown that for the most part, about 99% of crimes reported by migrants have not been investigated and those responsible haven't been sanctioned. So they most of this data has been collated within the shelters and by the groups that, that operate these shelters. Right? Within the shelters and then based on freedom information requests to Mexican authorities about progress made at the federal level and in several states in Mexico. Um, okay. And then you touch on one thing, which is true. Mexico is also becoming uh, slowly becoming a more of a destination country, not in any way that the level of the United States, but they saw over 14,000 asylum requests last year. It's about so a threefold even with these, increase. So even with these options in Mexico, most or a large number of these Central American uh, refugees slash asylum seekers are making the journey to the U.S. anyway. Yes, and I think, you know, the reasons for that are obviously multiple um, for some. And I think, you know, we have to talk about mixed flows. So we have a flow of some economic migrants and then some asylum seekers, meaning asylum seeker because you're coming to the United States to request protection. And when you um, request it actively, once you enter the country, you're considered an asylum seeker. Um, so you have these people coming. And I think a lot is they have family in the United States. So those family ties are a strong draw because you feel like you have someone that could protect you. And also the United States has a history of being welcoming to refugees and asylum seekers. And I think that's now Let me that... ask you a quick side question on that. Um, mm -hmm. Based on a conversation that I had with the uh, Consul General of Mexico in Miami, uh, Jose Antonio Zavagoita, about mm -hmm. a year ago, he was saying that at least with Mexican migrants, when they come to the U.S. and have family here, they're usually going to fill a job that is waiting for them. 
through those family connections. Is that the same for these Central American refugees slash asylum seekers? I, I would obviously you should ask them the Central American consulates, but I would suspect the answer would be yes. I mean, a lot of for for some people, right? So that, again, these are you know especially those that are coming here more for economic reasons. You have word of mouth, you have family connections that are saying, you know, there there's employment here. I think though for and, that other. Excuse and me. to make that distinction, just real mm-hmm. quick, um, but a good number of these individuals are actually seeking asylum when they get to our border, not necessarily um, walking into a job with their families, correct? Yeah, and I was going to say, I, mean, I think the other part of the population are people that are not calculating at all economic costs or benefits as much as I'm at risk, my family's at risk, they're either trying to you know, forcefully take me out of my home and take over my home for violence, or you want to recruit forcibly recruit your son or daughter to work for a gang and you feel like your only option is to flee. So right. it's not an economic calculation as much as a, a belief that um, the need to leave is much greater than any type of risk that you might have on the journey. And I think the, well, or even benefit you might see later. Let me quote you. Um, you're quoted in the uh, Washington street journal is saying the migrants who are coming, regardless of what is happening in the U S are those who can't afford to wait. Mm-hmm. I think you've touched on that a little bit. Could you go a little deeper into that? Like why, um, they're saying in your research, they can't necessarily afford to wait. I think for a lot of central Americans, they've already tried to wait it out in their home country, especially in places like El Salvador, where there's a severe problem with internal displacement. Someone may have moved around a few times within their country before they leave, but the reach of, of the gangs was so great in these cases that they, they felt they had no choice and they would not be safe in their home country. I think the other is, to, if you're looking at flows into the United States, there was a drop for the first few months after the Trump administration, you know, after Trump took office in January of 2017, And I think looking at asylum requests during that time period in the United States, they remained fairly constant. And again, would suggest then that for people that could afford to wait, they may have waited it out and tried to measure how much rhetoric in the United States was really going to translate into policy changes. But there are people that really can't afford to wait and are really just leaving out of a necessity of the immediate thought that it is too unsafe for me to stay in my home country or I'm putting the risk, the lives of my children at risk. And certainly, I guess one of the other things that we need to distinguish here is what people are running from. I mean, um, I think we're, we're leaning more towards discussing the violence that, um, say, Honduran and El Salvadoran um, immigrants are facing in their home countries, the gang violence, etc., but Guatemalans apparently are fleeing uh, food insecurity. Um, is there a little bit, is, is that also what you've determined with some of uh, the individuals from these individual countries is that some are fleeing impoverishment, hunger, while others are, are fleeing violence, or are they, or in some cases, are they fleeing a combination of those things? You know, I think the, the UN Refugee Agency is frequently referred to um, mixed flows going through the region. So a mixture of economic migrants plus asylum seekers. I think even for some migrants who you talk to who originally first act responses, oh, I'm coming to look for a job. And you dig a little deeper and they're like, well, yeah, and my uncle was killed and my brother was killed and we just started a business and they're extorting us. I mean, it's a lot more to these very simple statements of I'm coming to have a better job or have better economic well-being. 
Um, I think it, it is kind of a, a complicated um, flow of people. But even in the case of Guatemala, where Guatemalans have become the majority of Central Americans coming into the United States, it continues to be a country that has high homicide rates. We are, were hearing last week in Arizona about several Guatemalan families from the highlands of Guatemala, which you would probably historically think of as people coming more for economic reasons, who are mentioning more and more extortion, violent extortion. So if someone opening a business and being extorted and trying to have that extortion applied through violence to displacement by others, what they refer to as Ladinos, so non-Indigenous Guatemalans or others pushing people out of their communities. So I think even in places where you would think the, the main push is because of economic reasons, you're starting to see more concern of people fleeing violence and persecution. So would you say that, and just very, very briefly, would you say that there's a majority or a minority of the indigenous populations of these countries that are that are joining this flow? I think it's hard to know the exact percentage. Obviously, each country is different. Um, I think there are some a significant part of the Guatemalans that are coming from you know, indigenous populations, um, which also presents a lot of challenges here because many of them are not native Spanish speakers and speak very little Spanish. But I think right. overall, I mean, with any of these cases, what we think is needed in terms of a, a response is ensuring that anyone that is coming here and claiming that they are fleeing violence or persecution has the ability to seek that protection and have a day in court. Absolutely. Now, um, so on this journey, so they've, they, they make the decision to come for whatever reason, they go through Mexico, they may have a short to long stop over there. They're moving um, would you say primarily on foot through the country of Mexico or um, combination of by foot, by bus, by, you know, uh, the use of coyote guides that get them to the border? Or is there something a little bit more unique about these groups as they approach the U.S. border? I mean, I think, again, those that can't afford a coyote, it's by foot, it's by bus, it's by train. The migrants still continue to try to, to ride the train. I met a, a migrant last summer in, in Saltillo, in northern Mexico, who had you know, lost his leg just the week before because he fell off the train. I mean, so people continue to use the, the freight trains in Mexico to try to get up to the U.S.-Mexico border. If a family or an immigrant has the ability to hire a smuggler, mostly when you have U.S. family that can, can support you in this, then you're likely to have a much quicker trip through Mexico and probably a combination of different types of transportation. Um, and obviously their arrival at the U.S.-Mexico border is facilitated by paying several bribes to Mexican officials who are guarding different checkpoints. Now, let me ask you this. Are the majority um, getting smuggled in and then settling or are the majority or what percentage is actually stopping at the border to ask permission slash for asylum? Well, I think, you know, one is the fact that you can't cross the U.S.-Mexico border in between the ports of entry without figuring out which organized criminal group controls that part of the, the border and, and paying a fee to them and likely hiring a smuggler just because of how difficult it has become to cross. We are seeing families and children approach the ports of entries. This has been, you know, a traditional, as certainly in, in different parts of the border, particularly in Tijuana, where we've seen a continual flow of extracontinental migrants from Africa, other places usually going through Tijuana to request asylum at the port of entry. But we've That's seen 
increasingly, yeah, it's a, there's a little bit of everybody, I think, particularly in, in the Tijuana area. Um, increasingly in the past few years, though, Central Americans have also approached the ports of entry to request asylum. A lot of that seems to be determined more on what smugglers tell people of where they will need to go. Again, looking at the control they have over um, parts of the border. We were hearing last week, you know, smugglers a lot of times will push migrants into in between the ports of entry, literally helping them you know, cross over through a fence, you know, climb over the fence and come down. Sometimes also as a way to distract border patrol agents. So you have a high number of migrants crossing the border and that's a way to get drugs trafficked through another part of the same sector. So, you know, the control that criminal groups have and the fear that migrants have of these smugglers is something that we, we need to, to also take into consideration. If someone tells you, you need to cross through here, I think there's a lot of risk people would have to disobey them and say, no, I want to you know, go through the port of entry as opposed to you know, trying to go through undetected or trying to climb over a border fence. Um, and we've seen what recently, the fact that you do have more families wanting to cross through the ports of entry. So the legal way that U.S. would say to, to request asylum and being told no and being told not today, come back another day. We witnessed ourselves the fact that you can't set foot in the United States right now unless you've shown a Customs and Border Protection officer your adequate documentation because they're trying to control the flow of people that are being admitted into the United States, which for many families has meant one to two weeks, perhaps even longer, waiting on the Mexican side of the border to be admitted to request asylum in the United States. And that's very, with very few water and food resources, unless I'm assuming it's provided often by these criminal groups as they leverage these, these, um, these refugees. I think once they're at the ports, a lot of times what we've seen is the, the asylum seekers are being supported by shelters or organizations on both sides of the border. I can say in Nogales last week, we saw about 100, and, we heard, we saw about 10 people actually waiting at the port of entry to try to enter into the United States, waiting their time turn in line. These women that had been there with their children for about two days and had been in Nogales for over a week and it was sort of their turn to wait at the, the land port of entry. But overall, about 110 asylum seekers that were being held or hosted in an impromptu shelter that one of the organizations, the Kino Border Initiative, had created in the past two months as in response to the growing number of asylum seekers. Across the border, I think there's lots of different setups there of how do you support people that are um, requesting asylum. Many people are waiting at the bridges in South Texas to enter. And it is a, a very concerning situation because violence in some of these border states, particularly Tamaulipas, which borders South Texas, is very severe. And migrants and asylum seekers have been kidnapped and assaulted, even you know, while they're trying to get to the border and sometimes when they're being rejected from, from the border. Right. Now, speaking to that rejection, um, and I'm, I'm actually going to try and move us on a little bit faster because I know that we're a little short on time here. Uh-huh. But um, the Guardian, for instance, reports that um, that El Salvador is home to uh, 65,000 gang members, or about 1% of the country's entire 6.4 million population. Now, as refugees, asylum seekers, are arriving at our border, I think one of the concerns out there is how many of these refugees and asylum seekers are uh, involved in transnational crime or are um, 
current gang members, as it were, or other or from other criminal groups? And what do you say to those who might say that these refugees include uh, gang members? I think overall evidence would suggest that of those that might be gang members, other criminals, it's very few in numbers. I can't remember the most recent statistic, but I want to say it was less than 1% of the unaccompanied minors that had been crossing were at any sort of tied to gangs. I think the important thing to remember is there is a process in place to screen people. It's not automatic entry. I mean, even those that are requesting asylum have to go through background checks. They you know, get questioned. They go through a credible fear interview. And so you also have a system in place that for the most part would work to try to detect you know, this type of individuals and not even allow them entry into the United States. There was an interesting study by um, Insight Crime on whether gangs... Very good resource, by the way. Yes, very great for understanding all these criminal aspects of things on whether MS-13 and other gangs really had any say in the decision made from Central America of maybe a former gang member, current gang member's decision to migrate and found that for the most part, it's actually a family-based decision. So not... You know, the active recruitment of bringing people up here. And we do have to remember that for as much as um, MS-13 and other gangs are very so active. Let me interrupt you for a quick mm -hmm. second. So you're saying that probably in most cases, any former gang affiliation of youth, as it were, that are coming with their families is more than likely, those ties are more than likely severed when they make the journey. I'm saying that, that it's I'm not, I'm saying it's not that the gang is actively sending for people from right. these okay. home countries and that I'm just looking through, you know, older data would say that less than 1% of unaccompanied children that were being apprehended at the door, the border had any ties to gangs. And sometimes those ties may be someone that was a member of the gang that is trying to disconnect themselves, which is a whole other you know, category of even for, you know, seeking protection here because you don't want to work for the gang anymore. And the consequence could be pretty um, severe. Um, but I, I wanted to also highlight the fact that, you know, if you're looking at MS-13 and other gangs, they came originally from the United States and in the sense in terms of being formed by Central Americans and Los Angeles and others that had been fleeing the wars and then were then deported back to Central America and you know, expanded to, to the very ruthless criminal organizations we see today. Right. Some of the causes of this are actually some of our former policies on, uh, uh, both refugees and deportation, if yeah. I remember correctly. So um, it's not, you know, you know, placing a lot of blame on Central America without understanding both the U.S. role in destabilization in Central America for different eras and as well as, you know, sort of exporting these very violent gang members back to their home countries and it led to what we see today. Um, Maureen, we may not have a lot of time left, so I actually want to hit the two questions that I got from online, uh -huh. uh, one from Facebook and one from LinkedIn. These are multifaceted questions, so uh, each one, just give it what little bit of time you can within um, the mm -hmm. amount of time that you have left with us. Um, so the first one is uh, from Facebook, and it's actually, it's from Ian Scadden, uh, my little brother who's in... <laughs> He's uh, my little brother who uh, is, has recently become an agricultural scientist uh, and happens to speak Brazilian Portuguese. So he's kind of plugged into what's going on in Latin America as well. Um, he lived in Brazil. Um, so he's asking uh, in a very nerdy way, 
I'd like to see a proper cost-benefit analysis for the country that takes in the refugees. What are the short and long-term impacts to the economy, employment, et cetera, of accepting refugees? Is there a net positive or net negative impact? Um, so maybe that's enough right there. We'll, we'll try and get to the rest of this question at another time. But, um, uh, how about that? Is there a net so positive or net negative impact? In, in a nutshell, one I would recommend, um, Migration Policy Institute has written extensively on this. There's a lot of resources out there for all the nit nitty gritty. I think overall what we've seen is one. What was that organization one more time? The Sorry. Migration Policy Institute. Migration okay. Policy Institute. Um, okay. I think overall their belief is that there's a net gain in the United States. Um, one thinking a lot of the people that are here undocumented actually contribute to social security and other benefits that they're never going to get back. But the well, other is for refugees. So people coming here through a program and asylum seekers, what you see is perhaps in the short run, you it's more investment from the U S in terms of services, particularly educating people's children, but overall, you do find um, refugees have used benefits at or about the same rate as those with the United, in, that were born in the United States and that their incomes also increase. So I think um, it's over time for the, the United States has benefited from having refugee resettlement programs as well as asylum programs. And, and including... Well, let me, mm -hmm. let me add something to that. And it's... Um just a broad statement. The fact is, and there's plenty of data on this, uh, many migrants, undocumented workers, uh, asylum seekers, refugees, a lot of these individuals from Central America and Mexico are, are filling a labor market, a demand for labor within the U.S., uh, within agriculture, um, in construction, in any, any number of industries. And so, you know, it's a question, do we want to have that labor market filled and do we have processes to to attack that or, um, or, or are we, you know, are we going to continue to kind of flounder in that area? And that's a, another, a, you know, another discussion <laughs> that we can have another time. Um, but I appreciate your answer on that. Uh, let me follow up with the last question here uh -huh. and then any final thoughts you might have. And um, this one comes from LinkedIn from Eileen Filmus. I hope I said her name correctly. So, Eileen asks, why do you think it is that the general public disassociates these refugees from other displaced persons? Mm -hmm. Is the dichotomy based on numbers, as in the volume is consistent enough over time that it's been normalized and sympathy thus diluted, rather than there being anomalous precipitating incidents that make the news as causal to jumps in refugee flow, or are there other forces at play which have more to do with cultural attitudes? I think the first... Um, three lines there is what we need to focus on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, go ahead. especially we're talking about Central Americans, which I presume is, is the population that we're kind of in question here. Yeah, and I think it's- referring to that. Uh, this was in response to um, a post that I made about um, a, a discussion on, on Central America migration. So yeah, she was referring to refugees specifically from Central America and why uh, that sympathy is diluted compared to other um, displaced persons. I think overall it's that, you know, if you look at what people vision as a refugee, so people that are actually being processed overseas and are coming here as a part of that program, again, similar categories of what you're fleeing from, you're looking at, you view them, someone fleeing wars, armed conflicts, Syria, you know, other, you know, horribly um, violent areas, and not Central America. And yet, if you look at the levels of violence in Central America or studies done by the UN, you know, refugee 
Commission of the UNHCR on the conditions in Central America, a lot of people would compare them to that same type of trauma on the population and violence. I mean, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala continue to be countries that have some of the highest homicide rates in the world, with so the exception- the physical threats are the same. Physical threats are the same, although the, the perpetrators aren't. It's not an armed conflict that's officially recognized as such. It's gang activity, it's domestic violence, it's the overwhelming feeling that your government isn't able to protect you. But I think we don't view Central Americans, you don't view the situation in Central America as the same way as an armed conflict. And so I think people sometimes tend to also look at historic trends in migration from Latin America. And the historic trend has been one, primarily Mexicans and Mexicans coming here to seek better job opportunities and Central Americans also seeking better job opportunities are those that came as a result of natural disasters and now have you know, currently for the next few months, temporary protective status in the United States. So I don't think that the, the shift has been made yet in terms of the public mindset of understanding the levels of violence and persecution in Central America as something similar to what you see in other parts of the world in terms of, you know, people that might qualify and should qualify for some type of protection in the United States. Mm. Very good. Um, is there any final points you'd like to make about any of the publications that Wola has, anything that you've been working on as of late, or um, any shameless plugs that you might have? And feel free, shameless <laughs> plugs all day. That's no, I think one is it's really important to understand that as we look at who's coming through the United States and crossing, that it's not illegal to cross into another country and seek protection. And so all these efforts to criminalize who's coming over is very short-sighted has a lot of, I think, long-term damage in the Latino community in the United States and how they're viewed, but also is you know, overlooking the fact that in US and international law, it is perfectly legitimate to be coming to another country to pursue asylum. Whether you get it or not is a whole other legal process, but what they're doing isn't necessarily illegal. Um, and the second is that I think we need to focus a lot more on the push factor. So it's great that you're going to have more conversations about this, because for as much as we can look at what U.S. enforcement policy or Mexico's enforcement policy should be, how to increase both countries' systems to support asylum seekers and refugees, in the end of the day, what you need is to support Central American governments as they address the root causes of migration in terms of the labor market and economic opportunities, but also strengthen the institutions and creating uh, uh, conditions in their home countries where people don't feel that their governments are unable to protect them and that in many cases that the governments are part of the problem. So I think we're going to continue to do a lot of research on this. We have a report next few weeks coming out on our trip to the Arizona-Mexico border. So check out Wola's webpage, www w.wola.org in the next few weeks and we're continuously updating our materials excellent thank you everyone uh we've been discussing central america and uh migration and migration policy in the u.s and with marine meyer of the washington office on latin america thank you for listening and have a good afternoon thank you marie thanks michael bye-bye Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. 
Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.